This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Every once in a while, we like to get a, sort of a, a state of the church address from one of our favorite friends, someone who has been on this show a number of times. His name is Father Patrick Collins. Uh, Patrick Collins is a priest who lives in Douglas, Michigan, and uh, currently works for Cross International and he visits churches all around the country and encourages uh, generosity and um, support for uh, Catholic projects uh, of charity all over the country and beyond. So we welcome once again to Common Threads, Father Patrick Collins. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Fred. Thanks for inviting me again. Certainly. So, you know, it's probably been close to a couple of years since the last time you've been here. Mm-hmm. And... So much has happened in the Catholic Church uh, between your last time and today. So let's let me start with this. Uh, as a Catholic priest, how do you look at the Church today? What what are you pleased with, uh, and what concerns you? I'm very pleased with the leadership of Pope Francis and his pastoral approach, his experiential approach to discernment of particular situations rather than insisting some universal rule be automatically applied in every situation. Uh, That strikes me as more of what Jesus was up to and certainly more of what I've been up to in my 54 years as a priest, more of a pastoral approach. I'm very pleased with that. I know there's a lot of opposition to it from more conservative church leaders and people, but I think with this later, latest group of cardinals that he's appointed, <clears throat> he's pretty much assured the succession of himself and that his approach will survive his own demise or retirement with the new cardinals probably electing somebody like him rather than someone not like him. So I, I find that encouraging. Uh, do, do me a favor, though. Uh, let's let's uh, piece out this, this uh, term, pastoral approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the uninitiated, go into more detail. What does that mean in, from well, a leadership? Well, a pastor is a shepherd, someone who, whose primary concern is taking care of others, um, taking care of each sheep according to its unique needs. <clears throat> in fact, Pope Francis has come up with the phrase, he likes his priest to smell like the sheep, which is to be out there with the people and understand the people and their situations rather than just Im- imposing some universal law or rule on every situation, whether it applies or not. We grow into the faith. We're not perfect when we start. And uh, he seems to understand that and uh, invites people to, to grow beyond where they are, but to accept people where they are. He wants to walk with them, as he says, encourage them accompany them. That's one of his favorite phrases, accompany people where they are. I think that's what pastoral means. Now, I seem to recall that every once in a while I'll hear about some uh, directive that uh, is being uh, is being debated or some directive that just already happens to be. And I know the way the church works is, if I was to ask you, is, is X uh, appropriate behavior, you would say, yes, it is, because the, uh, the uh, bishop of Grand Rapids says it is. But, it, but if we go to Chicago, it, X may not be appropriate because the bishop said, bishop said no, right? Because there are, am I correct? There are some things that the local bishops have control over, right? All right? And there are some things where if the Catholic Church or the Pope says this is the way it is, then that supersedes whatever the bishop uh, says, right? Uh, the Pope is the universal pastor, and all bishops are supposed to march you know, with, with him. Exactly. But they also have a lot of latitude on certain issues in their own diocese to apply the universal message at the local level. 
<clears throat> they have that responsibility and that freedom. One area where uh, bishops seem to differ these days is on the application of the ministry to uh, LGBT people. Some bishops are much more open and welcoming and accepting of the situation and the people. Others are quite uh, forbidding and judgmental and, and, and sad to say, rather harsh with LGBT people. So that's an area where bishops will differ. But I think if they take their cue from Pope Francis, who just met with a gay person, interviewed him, and told him that God made him that way and don't worry about it, well, that seems to me to be a little different message than imposing a harsh, forbidding, firing people from jobs over being gay. So it seems to me some of the bishops are not listening too carefully to their their leader. Yet they still have that prerogative. The, they do. In, in, in the church structure, they can say, I, I choose to go my own way on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pope Francis's uh, uh, attitude, it reminds me, of a gentleman who's been on this program uh, several times before. Uh, He's Jewish, and he attends synagogues of a variety of stripes, Reform, Conservative, and even uh, Hasidic Ultra-Orthodox. And he went to a a Hasidic rabbi and said, Look, I'm gay. Uh, Can I still attend? Do you have any issues with it? And he said that the rabbi was silent for a second and just then said, there are 613 commandments, so try to pay attention to the other 612. (laughs) (laughs) Your other question was, uh, where are things not going so well in the church? And and that's uh, probably (laughs) going to take a lot longer to talk about than what's going well. Um, I preach on weekends in parishes all over the United States, as you mentioned. Tomorrow, for example, I'll be preaching in Mississippi for the weekend. And the thing that is almost universal is rarely do you see anybody under 50 in church. Uh, There are some very happy exceptions where churches are busting at the seams with families and young people, such as my best friend's pastorate in Traverse City, Michigan, St. Francis Parish. It's a very different experience going there. All ages, the church is full, families. But most places you go, you don't see young people at all. Young don't see families at all, young families. It's just uh, us older people who still go to church. And that's a, that's a major concern for the future because who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to keep the roof on in 10 years? When I look out at a congregation this weekend... I'll probably say in 10 years, there will only be about 5% of us still alive. And so who's going to pay the bills? That's a major concern for the institutional church. Well, what does uh, your colleague in Traverse City do differently than the people that you suspect you'll see <clears throat> in Mississippi? Have you been, By the way, have you been to this Mississippi church before? No, no, I've okay. never been there. In Traverse City at St. Francis, uh, Father Ken Stocknick has been pastor there for 14 years, and he's very pastoral. Everything I said about pastoral, Ken embodies and does extremely well. He's much loved by the people. He's a very good preacher. He prepares his homilies well. The liturgies are superb. They're well-crafted. The music is very good. And there's just a spirit of welcome and acceptance of people there that's, uh, that's marvelous. Oftentimes, I'm afraid, in Catholic churches, um, there's a kind of an atmosphere of, of coldness. You, you come into the front door, you're not welcomed, uh, you, nobody speaks to you, you go to your seat to do your duty so you don't go to hell by missing Mass on Sunday. And there's just that feeling of obedience and duty, and it's not very warm or human. Now, fortunately, I think we're getting better at being more welcoming, more hospitable. But uh, that's not been the characterization of a Catholic liturgical experience over the last few years in too many places. But at Ken's Parish, it's the opposite. There are greeters out there at the beginning and the end. The priests stand out and greet the people. Uh, it's, it's just a very pastoral, welcoming, warm, interactive, pay-attention-to-the-lay-people community. If I remember correctly... Aren't priests transferred 
every few years from one parish to another? That differs from diocese to diocese. There's no universal rule on that. Uh, when I grew up, pastors just stayed in place till they died when I was a young priest. Really? Yeah, they were very rarely ever transferred. They never retired. Retirement came, and the older guys really didn't know what to do with themselves because they didn't imagine being retired. They were just supposed to stay on as pastors till they died. So that probably began about 1967 or 8 after Vatican II, where retirement came in. And then they began to develop a policy of 6 6. At the end of six years, you're evaluated, and the people evaluate you, the bishop evaluates, you evaluate as a pastor, how am I doing? And if everybody agrees, you can stay six more, but then you're out. But that's a, a, a norm, a rule that each bishop can put in place. There's no universal law about we that. We were just talking about that, how yeah. dioceses, different dioceses do different things. Yes, they do. Mm-hmm. And then... There are always exceptions. Let's suppose a guy's been in place for 12 years, but he's retiring in two years. Well, you're not going to move him to a new place to start over for his last two years. I mean, normally you wouldn't probably do that. So there have to be exceptions even when you impose the 12-12-12-6-6-12 year policy. The thing of it is, what what's so challenging, so uh, do you have any idea uh, how long realistically, your colleague Ken can stay in his church. Well, that's a problem because Ken has been involved in a $7 million building project there to build a family center, which they desperately need. They have 2,200 families, and the family center seats 150 people. So there's no place for the community to gather outside of the worship space. So he was actually sent there by a previous bishop because he was known for being a good builder to get this project going. Seven million dollars is a lot of money. They're about six hundred thousand dollars short of that. And the bishop had promised uh, that he could stay until the project was finished. But then last summer, the bishop decided to impose the twelve-year policy and told Father Ken he had to leave, which didn't please the parishioners or the building committee or Father Ken very much. Uh, And the bishop's been absolutely inflexible about that. So this uh, end of August, uh, Ken is out after 14 years, and the building project is not complete. The rectory part is in process now. They've laid the foundations, and it's, it's, it's going up. But the offices and the family center have to wait till the, it, all the money is in. That diocese has a policy. You can't build until you have all the money. Now, my diocese of Peoria, as I recall, has a policy of something like you have to have 75% in the bank before you can begin. But again, that's a decision of each bishop, how he applies the, the rules. But I think it's very unfortunate for the parish in Traverse City to lose the pastor in the middle, middle, middle of this unfinished project. It may never get finished now because of this, I'm afraid. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Father Patrick Collins. Uh, yeah, that, that is amazing because I notice certainly, especially in Protestant churches, more so than Catholic churches. Um, now, this may not be as true as it was perhaps when you were uh, growing up, but I seem to remember an understanding that Catholics would go to whatever their parish church was, no matter how much they disliked the priest. And they did their duty. They got their get-out-of-hell card free right. <laughs> every every Sunday, come home, crank about what a boring sermon it was and whatnot, but nonetheless, they did their duty, and they, were, they weren't going to look anywhere. Loyalty. Very, very firm <clears throat> loyalty, absolutely. Now, Protestants, they, they tend, historically, to be a little bit more choosy about, about their uh, <laughs> pastors, and many of them, not all of them, depending on the denomination, they get to choose, they get to hire their pastors. Well, I grew up in a church like that in Wyoming, Illinois, the Congregational Church. And during my growing up years, the people hired and fired four preachers and their wives. 
you know, somebody would dislike the the drapes that the woman bought for the new parsonage. <laughs> you know, some of them were sort of bizarre things, but the people totally owned the preacher, and the preacher was only free to preach what the people wanted to hear. Uh, right. Down so, the street, Father Bratkowski at St. Dominic said jump, and everybody jumped. Yeah. <laughs> and so as a high school boy, I was uh, more impressed with the orderliness of St. Dominic's than the chaos of the Congregational Church. Because if you didn't get the new preacher that you wanted, you might become a Methodist. So exactly. it, was, it was just very, very chaotic. So somewhere between tyranny and chaos, <laughs> there, there needs to be common sense as to how the people can be listened to, and yet they don't own the, the priest or the preacher. Exactly. Somewhere in between. Now, we're working toward that as, as Catholics, I think. It's called consultative approach. So, so uh, whomever takes over Father Ken's position has tremendous shoes to fill, if, if what you say is true. He and, does. And he's, he's not going to be easy to replace, possibly. Uh, I would think not. Yeah, I, would, I wish the man well. I think it's going to be a real hard job because the people are not happy with the change. I hope the people will support and accept the new man so, to, so that the work that Ken did can be built upon and not just destroyed by people's anger and disappointment. One of the things that we talked about last time but it, we bring it up again because so much uh, has changed since our last conversation uh, about this is, of course, the sexual abuse scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last couple of years, do you have any, any new insights? Uh, I do. Observations? Well, I think finally the bishops are being called to task. Before, it was we priests who messed up, were thrown out in the street or something. But the bishop who passed us around and didn't tell what was going on, they continued to wear their pointy hats and uh, were you know, not held accountable. Now, particularly with Pope Francis and this situation in Chile where all 34 bishops have resigned over their mishandling of sexual abuse and they're waiting for the pope to accept or not accept their resignation, uh, bishops are finally being held accountable. Uh, Something like, at the time of the Dallas Charter, which was the U.S. bishop's way of dealing with sexual abuse in 2002, at that time, it was documented that about two-thirds of the bishops were complicit in in not properly reporting sexual abuse or passing priests around who were guilty of sexual abuse. About two-thirds of the bishops was documented in the Dallas Morning News in 2002. Five, six percent maybe of priests were guilty of sexual abuse, according to studies since 2002. Well, that's, uh, that kind of shows that the, the, the bishops have been part of the problem because they've not been handling it properly. And hopefully now they'll be, they'll be not only more responsible, but that they will be called to task and be out in the street themselves. And... Uh... I know that Pope Francis took some criticism over Chile because initially he he did not believe what he was hearing. Right, and then he apologized profoundly at his utter failure to deal properly with the Chile situation. And I I have a feeling there are going to be more and more of those situations coming up as people feel free to come forward about bishops not handling the situation properly. They were just very self-protective of the institution. It would hush people up. So do you think that enough safeguards have been put in place right now in parishes all over the country or all over the world? Have you been studying just exactly how the church is addressing that portion of it to make sure that it doesn't continue? My impression is that policies have been put in place that dioceses are supposed to implement but I'm also, I also get the impression that that's not all even, that some dioceses are not as, as respectful of what they're supposed to be doing as uh, they should be. Uh, I just, I've read that and I've heard that from people, some people involved in it. That just sounds like a recipe for disaster. It does. It does. I can't fathom a, a, a bishop wanting to put his diocese in such jeopardy, to put children in jeopardy. Well, I know one particular diocese, uh, they, they just have not been reporting. They're supposed to report. There's an audit required every year of all this. 
And this one particular diocese has been rather selective in their auditing. I think they may soon be called to task from what I hear. Mm. Um, but you mentioned training and so on. I, yeah. I, I just I don't know what they do in seminaries these days to help people at the psychosexual level of maturation. When I grew up, it was all to- almost totally ignored in the seminary. You were just said, if you're celibate, you don't have sex. That's the end of the story. Uh, next question. There was no psychosexual training, you know, formation or anything about the No evaluation? No. I mean, I think if you got in trouble, you'd be thrown out or, or criticized and said to shape up. But we, we were very poorly trained at that level. I'm, I, I'm sure that they're doing much better at that now. But I, I don't know what they're doing about the gay issue in the seminaries. Um, the, the Pope has been just recently said something about he didn't want gay seminarians. Uh, Which Benedict, surprised me. Yeah, it did me too. Uh, Pope Benedict had said you know, no gay seminarians. But then the seminary went on and continue, continued receiving and ordaining gay people. Oh, they did? Oh, yeah. After Pope Benedict said yes. that? Yes, mm-hmm. But um, so I don't know really how how the seminaries are dealing with with that today. But but because you're gay doesn't mean you're going to be a pedophile. Um, Well, I'm sure Pope Francis, I I guess he doesn't believe that, does he? I wouldn't think so. And just because you're gay doesn't mean you're not going to be celibate. What was that? Just because you are gay doesn't mean you're not going to be celibate. No, No, not at all. So I don't know how they deal with all that. I, the, the underlying question, of course, for me has long been our, our particular Catholic teaching on human sexuality, which I think is, um, to put it kindly, incredible to most Catholic people. The rationale for the way people are meant to behave sexually uh, is based more on biology than on relationality, and it's just not very, the natural law approach is not very persuasive to the modern mind. Uh, I think if you told Catholic people what it was, if they, they'd they be surprised, many of them, to know what the teaching is. And if they do know what the teaching is, I, I suspect many of them simply ignore it in their own lives. And it, it stems back to the 1968 a papal document on birth control where Catholic people were beginning to practice birth control and expected the church was about to change the teaching. But because Pope Paul VI felt that the teaching on sexuality could not be changed, every act of marriage must be open to the transmission of a new life, he could not change the teaching in his judgment. And I think Catholic people at that point began to make up their own minds and have only continued to do so until today. So I think at the core of, of all of our problems, this may, be, this may be an exaggeration, but is an inadequate understanding of and teaching about human sexuality. You just name the problem, and chances are sex is at the core of the issue, whether it's celibacy, sexual abuse, uh, birth control, marriage and divorce, women priests, you name it, and somehow sex is tinged in with it in some way. And if I were the CEO of a major international corporation, the largest one in the world, as a matter of fact, the Catholic Church, and I saw six areas troubling my institution, and I discovered that they all had one thing in common, would I say you're not allowed to talk about it? I think we need to have a major conversation in the Catholic Church, ecumenically, interdisciplinary-wise, about the meaning of human sexuality. Because the sexual revolution of the 60s was not the answer. You know, we're still suffering from the, uh, the, the chaos Excesses, of the 60s. Yeah. Um, but neither was the rigidity of, of a lot of Christian teaching about sexuality. So we need to have a major professional, international, ecumenical, interdisciplinary study the commission or something to try to try to come up with something credible well are you uh is i the think pope I, go- i'm finished with that one <laughs> <laughs> i'll probably be thrown out of the church now i think i'm only reflecting what m- most priests and people think 
from from what I from what I gather, you you are certainly not alone, uh, not as a Catholic and not as uh, a priest. I've I've had many conversations with people uh, in the church about this, and uh, while there certainly is an opposing viewpoint. Uh, I, I think there's enough of you out there to, to make it a legitimate uh, a point for conversation. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, Father Collins, we're down to the wire for this edition of Common Threats, but uh, we've got more questions to ask. I hope that you'll uh, join us next week. Thank you. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella. My guest today has been Father Patrick Collins, and we will be back next week. Please join us here on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Hello, I'm Fred Stella president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with Father Patrick Collins as he gave us a sort of state of the church, as he does every so often here on WGVU. And we've got him back again to finish our conversation. So, <coughs> Father Collins, welcome back to Common Threads. Thank you. So, last week, oh boy, we covered uh, we covered some ground. We were talking about... Uh, uh, the lack of attendance, the concern uh, for this next generation of Catholics coming up. Uh, we talked about uh, the uh, the uh, sex scandal, the the, the uh, sexual abuse scandal, with the priests, and now, of course, the bishops. We talked a little bit about uh, the new pope. Uh, but there are plenty of other things to talk about. One of the things, and you and I have had personal conversations about this, this, this draw... Uh, 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 of millennials towards this spiritual but not religious, this rather nebulous mm-hmm. uh, um, theology or lack thereof. And I'm curious, aside from the fact that you notice that churches are just becoming grayer and grayer and grayer, and, and congregations smaller and smaller. Have you had conversations with with uh, younger people who've explained why they did not take the mantle of their parents uh, and and continue to be Catholic? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Unfortunately, Fred, I, I have not. I'm kind of out of touch with uh, younger people being retired and so on. Uh, but mainly, what I know about is what I read and what I hear from older people about their children and their grandchildren. I will meet people in these parishes where I preach, people of my generation and a little younger, who will say they spent all this money on Catholic education for their kids and none of them go to church, and their grandchildren aren't even baptized. I hear that over and over again. And so I have to ask myself, what's, what's going on? And try to think it through. And I've come up with two, two problems, one church-related, one culture-related. I think in the, in the culture, we've become such individualists in the way we think about ourselves. 
it's my way, no way, and I don't need you. And so why would you join a community? Why would you get married? You know, marriage is on the way out. A lot of people aren't getting married. I just read today that uh, in 2017, only 22% of marriages were church-related, compared to 40-some about 10 years ago, 40% about 10 years ago. I think people don't feel like they need community. They don't see any point in it. It's, a, it's kind of a pain, and why bother with other people? I'll just do my thing. Individualism has really triumphed, and in time, I think that will, that will prove to be a problem because humans aren't meant to be alone. We're meant to be connected. And once it's just my way, it's going to be friction and war and problems. So I think that's a cultural issue. Related to that culturally, it seems to me, is the secularism. Everything is on the horizontal level. Everything is this world, what I can have, what I do, where I live, what I drive, what I'm called. It's all about this world. There's no transcendent referent, no looking up, no vertical referent in the consciousness of our culture. Uh, and if, if there's no vertical referent, there's no God involved. You don't need God and Christ and the church and prayer and those things. Um, Suicide, I notice, is on the, in the way up uh, lately. And I think that also stems from the fact that if there's no vertical, if there's no transcendent referent, what does it mean? If it, if it just means about what you're called and where you live and what you drive, that kind of falls flat eventually. There's no referent beyond yourself and those things. So between individualism and secularism, I think the culture has a major problem relating to religion. Why would you need religion? The church's problem, I think, is partly not just the abuse issues and the violations of trust, but the way we've gone about presenting religion has been too doctrinal, too intellectual, too heady. Too much about rituals, rules, and doctrines to be memorized and affirmed as if that's your faith. That's second-level stuff. That's, that's the way faith is talked about. That's the way faith is practiced. But that's not faith. Faith is meant to be a personal experience of God in your consciousness, in your life, in your world. And it relates you to your life and your world in a different way because it's not just about you. It's about you having having a responsibility to do something in the world to make it better, to make it the way God wants it. But if God isn't part of the picture, it's just the way I want it. And I think the church has been far too heady in the way we've presented it. My suggestion at my old age would be for the church to emphasize narrative, story, the gospel, after all, is not a bunch of doctrines and rules. It's a, it's a collection of stories in which each of us is meant to find our own personal story. Uh, one writer said, stories give you room to walk around in the story and find your own story. And I think if we presented the, the story of Jesus, the God story in, in, in creative history, and helped us find our way into that story and participate in it, that would be exciting. That would be challenging. That would be comforting. And that would allow for the pastoral approach we talked about last week. The, the, the do it, everybody gets to kind of come at it in a different way, but we're all up to the same thing. We're all up to living out the great story. What would you do with, say, the Nicene Creed? Is, is, that, still, is that still relevant uh, to, to be, I mean... Not, not that it shouldn't exist, but in terms of a, a, a weekly recitation uh, and, and a commitment to being able to say, yes, as a Catholic uh, or a Christian, because I know some Protestants also use the creed in, in their uh, mm-hmm. worship services, to be able to uh, uh, declare communally, this is what we believe I find that the reciting the creeds you know, Sunday after Sunday to be just very tiresome, and people look bored out of their gourd standing there muttering these phrases. It's not that we don't believe them. It's not that they're not true. It's not that they're not intellectually interesting. 
or historically created, they all were, and they're still valid. But I don't think it's helpful to have to stand up and say that, all those theological phrases every week. I, I, I wish we didn't have to do that. Some parishes do the Apostles' Creed as a variant on that, and I think you're allowed to do that at least sometimes of the year. But still, it's, it's a lot of theological phraseology that I don't think is experientially helpful for your faith. It... So, how does the church go from where it is now to where you would like it? J- just in this is one, is this one uh, area in terms of in- encouraging narrative. The narrative. I mean, is there a movement in the church that perhaps I'm not aware of that is trying to bring it to that? Uh, the recent popes, John the twenty, John the, Paul II and Benedict and Francis, have all talked about what they call the new evangelization, which means the new way of spreading the gospel. And when they began talking about that, I began to try to read what they were saying and see what, what do you mean by this new evangelization. And I kind of got the impression that what they were trying to do was to reimpose the catechism, you know, because... After Vatican II, we kind of veered away from memorizing the catechism as the way of passing on the faith and went to more experiential, hands-on, touchy-feely stuff in catechetical work and kind of lost touch with the hard, cold facts of the catechism. And my impression was, and, and I think that was, that was a bad thing in a way, because I, th- I do think we lost a, a ra- rational foundation for our faith by not teaching the catechism. But if that's all you teach, it's just in your head. It's not in your life. So balancing the two is important. So I began to wonder, are are we supposed to go back now to teaching the catechism again? And I I don't think it was ever clear to me what they really mean by the new evangelization. What, What I would like to see with the new evangelization is going to this story business, the narrative. Because evangelization means the gospel. You're spreading the gospel. How do you spread the gospel? By relating it to your life. By finding experiences and questions in life that the gospel sheds a light on. And let that be your lived faith. Living out this light that's shining into your experience um, to help you know what, what it means. Give meaning to your existence, to your life. So I, I would like to see that happen at the level of catechesis, evangelization. But more important to me, and I don't see this happening very much at a broad level, um, bringing to the surface the contemplative dimension of the Christian tradition and all the religious traditions, your own Hindu tradition, the Buddhist tradition, contemplative dimension. You say, well, what is that? Well, (laughs) That relates the narrative to your own story through prayer, Mm -hmm. through a discipline. Uh, One Buddhist monk said to Thomas Merton, don't tell me what you believe, tell me how you practice. So it would be a, a way of helping people practice contemplative prayer with the scriptures, which then become their life. The connection between the word of God and the word of my own life, that, that link happens through my prayer time, through the solitude and the silence of praying with the word, being with the word, and, and letting this be an experience of God, not just ideas about God, which is what the Catechism and the Nicene Creed give you. You know, it's interesting that there is uh, quite a growth in the discipline of contemplation and meditation in in Western society here in the United States, that but the interesting part about it is it tends to be heavily secular. So, mm, for instance, yoga. The, and... um, well, yeah, and the, well, yoga, which has a deep spiritual mm-hmm. tradition, but that <clears throat> that spiritual tradition has been extricated, if you will. I mean, it, it would be like taking the Eucharist and then just having a party where people are eating bread and wine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the same is true for meditation. You have this mindfulness movement, and I'm not criticizing this. I'm mm-hmm. simply reporting what is. Mm-hmm. that there, there is this mindfulness movement, this <clears throat> meditation movement, where people are taking up the practice, but they seem to be taking up the practice for purely pragmatic, 
secular reasons. Mm-hmm. I want less stress less in my stress. life. Um, I want some alone time. I enjoy the quiet. Mm-hmm. Those are all very wonderful reasons, and I wouldn't try to talk anybody out of that practice, nor would I attempt to uh, try to talk somebody who has a completely secular worldview into making it spiritual if they don't feel that that call. Mm-hmm. Um, I also see, I've spoken to um, people who practice meditation, who teach meditation from a religious standpoint. I've also heard from them that they get people saying, you know, I took this meditation course, uh, you know, in, in a secular in a secular setting, and I like it, but now I want to take it to a higher level. I mm. want to take it, as you would say, vertically. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen all the time, but, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's there. Well, I think that's what people, young people, you talk about the millennials, I think a major value for young people is experience. You can't just tell me about it. I have to have an experience of it. And that applies to religion as well. We need to have an experience of the transcendent in our lives, of God, not as as somebody said, uh, <laughs> death is God's final gotcha. One of my friends <laughs> said that as he was preparing to die of cancer at the age of 50. Death is God's final gotcha. But that God is with you before the gotcha. Uh, God is with you always. When you were with God, the problem is you just don't know it. You have to wake up to it, to realize it, to make it real for yourself. Um, and so somewhere at this, through this word experience, I think you can begin to connect with, with the millennials who want to have an experience. And I think when they say I'm spiritual but not religious, I think that's kind of what they're saying. Whatever spiritual means to them, whether it means this mindfulness or you know, being more at peace or whatever, that's the experience they're looking for. And they don't find that religion gives them any help or grounding of that. To me, it's a matter of both and. The religion gives me the story that can ground my spiritual experience. And chances are, if I'm not grounded in a story bigger than my own, I can end up in idolatry, idolizing myself and how I feel about this, how do I feel about that, how do I think about that, rather than who are we and what do we mean together as a, as a, as a world, as an earth, as a people. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today, Father Patrick Collins. Uh, I was having a conversation with someone not too terribly long ago. He said something interesting. He, he is a practicing Catholic, and he, he seeks out people such as you right, in his community. He seeks out a more progressive Catholic voice. And at the same time, he also listens to the, the Catholic uh, radio network, uh, EWTN. Mm-hmm. And he's absolutely amazed when he speaks to people who would, who would say, uh, we might say are on your team, if you will. He feels uplifted and, and joyous and very proud to identify as a Roman Catholic. But he said, when I listen to the Catholic radio shows, I think I'm in second grade again. Hmm. Uh, because, and I've listened to uh, Catholic radio on occasion just just to hear what he's saying and the kinds of questions that they they talk about is like how to avoid going to hell, mm-hmm. how hot is purgatory. <laughs> uh, I remember a, a, a call-in show where a woman, she called a priest, uh, she's a Eucharistic minister, and she accidentally took three hosts and put them in her purse and forgot about them and wanted to know, should she go to confession? Those are the kinds of things mm-hmm. that... that That's uh, a law and order kind of religion. You want to see, did I obey all the rules? And if I didn't, how can I get freed up from my guilt? Exactly. That's, uh, but, but, that's not the Catholicism that I, I care about. But, but, but his question, uh, and, and my question as well, isn't it the person who holds the talking stick is the one who controls the conversation? Mm-hmm. It seems like if you want that kind of Catholicism, you know where to get it. 
You can get it all over the world, especially now. Uh, you don't even have to listen to it on the radio. You can find the app for it. Where does one go to hear the kind of conversation that you offer and your colleagues uh, on on a regular basis, if you will? You, you aren't aren't you still a little bit on the fringe? Would you say, or or are you becoming more mainstream? Well, I think it's in the print media a lot. I mean, most of the stuff I've been talking about is based upon stuff I've read in the newspapers, articles, books, magazines. Uh, I don't know that it's out there in the television and, and radio media. I, I, I think that's a good I question. I haven't found it if it is. I, I, scour, I scour TV and radio, uh, uh, both uh, terrestrial and uh, Internet, always looking for interesting things of a spiritual nature. And if there is a progressive, narrative-oriented Catholicism out there, I don't know about it. Do you know the name Richard Rohr? Oh, of Richard course. Rohr, he's been on this program before. Well, I think he's an example, but he doesn't have a television show. He has an internet community that he works with yes. all the time. We hear from him every day in his meditations. He certainly represents the con- contemplation in action uh, connection that we're talking about. But uh, he doesn't, I don't think he has a radio show. And I know I don't believe he does program. either. When I was in Peoria, I had a television series for two or three years called More Than Meets the Eye. Really? Yeah. It was a way of relating religion and culture so that you would see in the culture more than meets the eye. You'd see the transcendent dimension. And I explored all sorts of subjects and had guest speakers on with me and used a lot of the arts, singing and dances. had the Peoria Ballet performed for one of my programs. It was a wonderful series. It was aired out of New York on the Catholic Television Network of New York for a while. Um, you, you you produced it in Peoria. I produced it. I starred in it. I was the host and all this. And it was a lot of fun. People in Peoria raised money for, to put it on. But but you say that it, it, it was broadcast out of New York. Well, it was broadcast in Peoria, and then the Catholic Television Network out in New York picked it up, and they, they used the series. I think it was... Maybe three years of 12 programs each year or something like that. Oh, no, It was kind know, of fun. I, I don't think we've ever had a conversation on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some people were saying, they, in Peoria, were saying, we need a new Bishop Sheen. And some people were saying, you can be the new Bishop Sheen. <laughs> well, never for a minute did I, in my wildest arrogance, think of myself as Bishop Sheen. But I think they were right in saying we need somebody like that on television to give to give the message, somebody that's appealing, intellectually interesting, um, and knows how to use the media. Well, I didn't, but I was learning. And uh, we had some really interesting shows, I thought. Oh, wonderful. Uh, are you still giving retreats? I'd, I've given up the retreats pretty much in the parish missions. It was just, I'm almost 82 years old, and it was just too much stress for me, too much, required too much energy. Plus, I remember the last parish mission I was giving, I was finding I was boring myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been saying the same thing to different audiences all over the country for so many years. I was boring myself, and I thought, this must be time to quit. <laughs> but I still do the preaching on weekends for the poor of the cross Catholic outreach, and I, I still have the energy to do that and enjoy doing that. That is amazing. So you are in different cities every weekend, almost every weekend, forty weekends a year, just about. Yeah, and and that often involves plane travel. Oh, almost always, unless I can drive. If it's a short distance in Michigan somewhere, I can drive. But usually, like I fly to Mobile, Alabama tomorrow, and uh, somebody will pick me up and drive me an hour's distance to a parish in Mississippi. And then Sunday afternoon, they'll drive me back to Mobile, and I'll fly to Grand Rapids. That, to me, is just an amazing... (laughs) It is stressful, and it's getting harder as I get older. It takes me about two days to recover. Does it really? Yeah, Monday I don't do anything, and I'm finding even on Tuesday I'm still tired. 
But I love doing it, and I, I hope I can keep doing it. That That's wonderful. I mean, it's just the fact that when you go to the airport, you have no idea. You, talk about the exercise of surrender. <laughs> it that, is. That it's, that really is. It's a turning Air over. travel is a spiritual, you can be a spiritual practice. It is. Because you surrender to the cosmic will. Yep. And you, you have surrender to whatever's going to happen. No idea when you're going to take off, when you're going to land. And, and and where you're going to sleep. Where you're going to sleep. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> in one rectory I, I, I slept in, I, I picked up the, the thing called scabies, something that gets into your skin. Oh, no. Oh, and it lasted for months. I couldn't get rid of it. Um, so the, the doctor wanted to know if I sleep around a lot. And I said, <laughs> well, every weekend I sleep in a different rectory, but I'm not sure that's what you mean. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's a trial, but it's. I sometimes think you know I'm preaching for the poor, and I'm thinking the poor people put up with a lot of indignities and inconveniences, and so I, I shouldn't complain about a few. That's a marvelous attitude, yeah. marvelous attitude to take. Uh, and do you have a spiritual community here locally? I do not, and that makes me sad. I, you know on. Weekends I'm gone, so, and that's when spiritual communities tend to gather. So I, I don't. I'm part of a Merton discussion group that meets once a month on the third Wednesday or something uh, at the Baker Bookstore. But uh, and I often don't make that because I'm doing something or I'm gone. But no, I don't, and I, I'm I'm impoverished. I think because I don't. Well, Patrick, it was uh, wonderful having you here uh, this week and uh, last week as well. It's Thank you. Uh, always great to have your insights and learn about uh, your uh, your take on things. So we wish you well, and we'll we'll certainly be having you back in the not too terribly distant. Thank you, Fred. God bless you. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella. Father Patrick Collins has been our guest today and last week as well. Please join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads.